0: 1998 Steven Spielberg film Saving Private Ryan doesn't begin the way that I thought it began. If you had asked me a few months ago how Saving Private Ryan begins, I would have said that it starts uh, on the beaches of Normandy. I would have said that it starts with uh, the soldiers sort of landing on the beaches under heavy uh, artillery uh, fire. I would have said that the film began with this big sort of grand a war scene well i watched saving private ryan uh not all that long ago and that is not how it begins at all Uh, the film actually begins in a graveyard many many years later begins with the scene of an elderly man he comes in the graveyard and he looks down at these war graves And then the the camera sort of focuses in on his face and then it zooms in a little bit more and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. And the whole of the rest of the film is told as his remembrance of events. And isn't that what's going on in the book of Ecclesiastes? Isn't it? Like this book here is a recollection of events that uh, the author, the speaker of this book, King Solomon, he's kind of standing at the end of his life and he's looking back the way he's thinking about his life. He's recalling all the events of his life. Well, thankfully, unlike Private Ryan... Uh, Solomon is actually willing to talk about what he has seen and experienced in his life. And tonight, what he says here, listen to me, has much to tell us, not just about life and the way that we should live. See these verses tonight? They tell us an awful lot about the life that's to come. A lot we learn here about life after death. So I'd invite you, first of all, I'd invite you just to turn with me to the portion of Scripture to have it open in front of you. So it's page 670, Ecclesiastes 3 from verse 16. Have it there. And while you're looking it up, I'll say that really tonight eh, we're going to look at two lessons, just the two lessons that we learn from this portion of Scripture. But before we launch into it, let me just pray for a moment. Let's pray together, shall we? Uh, Lord, we are uh, in great need of your mercy. We see that, especially as we consider uh, themes of judgment and death and the, uh, the afterlife. And as we think about these things tonight, we ask that you would help us, uh, Lord God, that you would minister to us this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first, so there's two lessons. The first is uh, this. We learn in this portion of Scripture that earthly injustice, it should evoke greater faith in God. And I know that's not the punchiest uh, heading that you've ever had, so I'll say it again. the earthly injustice, earthly injustice should evoke or prompt from us greater trust, greater faith in God. So what does that mean? Well this section starts in a way that's supposed to shock you. You and I supposed to start this verse 16 and we're supposed to be uh, surprised by what we hear because Solomon says here, in his life as he looks back, he's seen a lot of wickedness. Now that's not surprising. But he actually says he's seen wickedness and evil in the very places that you would not expect to see these things. That he's looking back in his life and he says, I've, I've seen much evil. But he doesn't talk about bars and clubs and pubs. And he doesn't talk about prisons and so forth. What does he say? Where has he seen evil? Look at the first place in verse 16. So look, there's wickedness, there's evil. Where? In the place of Judgment. So do you, do you see, obvious question, but do you see what he's referring to there? He's talking about the courts of law. Like he's seen corruption in the, the one place that has been established to wipe that out. That's what he's talking about here. And I think, straight away, that sounds kind of familiar to you and to me, doesn't it? Like the idea of corruption and wickedness in the courts of law. Let me let me give you an, an example. In um, 2004, a, a superior court judge in the United States, a guy called John Malloy, he writes a book. Some of you may know the book, quite a famous book. And in this book, he speaks about the legal system in the United States. And he makes this bold claim, this thesis in the book, that the whole legal system in the United States, in his view, was corrupt. Now, remember what I said he was. This is a superior court judge, or a retired superior court judge. Now, his idea was that over time, over the years, that that people, lawyers, had deliberately uh, complicated the legal system in the United States. Why? Just to make it inaccessible to the ordinary people. You know, they deliberately just try and entangle the law. They make it more and more complicated. Why? So that they can make a little bit more cash. Now, that's his thesis. Every year this happens, and every year I say the same thing. I wish they would wait to the end of the sermon before that happens. It would be a great climax to the sermon if if we had fireworks. But anyway, if you, if you discount John Molloy's thesis about uh, the legal system, the overall point is the same. When you and I look at the judicial system in this country, if we look at the judicial system elsewhere in other countries, what do we see time and time again? What do we hear about? We hear about corruption, don't we? We hear about wickedness in the place of judgment. It's real. It's real for Solomon. It's real for us. Okay? Then what happens Well, then Solomon makes another charge. Look at this in verse 16. Now, he says this. He says he's also seen wickedness in the place of justice. Now, that's a fine translation, but I think the ESV is more helpful here because what Solomon says is that he's seen wickedness and corruption in the place, wait for it, in the place of righteousness. Do you see his accusation? He's seen, what is, what's he saying? He's seen wickedness and evil. He's saying he's seen it in the temple of God itself. That in the, the one place, the very place that you and I and Solomon would hope with all of our hearts that there isn't any wickedness. Solomon says, no, no, even in the temple of God, even in the house of God, wickedness overflows. And again, aren't you with me? Aren't you nodding in agreement with that? Like from the sexual abuse that rocks the Catholic Church through to the sort of impropriety of TV evangelists and wait, maybe to the things that are a bit more close to home, you know, and the scandals that hit evangelical ministers and elders in the UK and abroad. Like, what do we see? What do we see? We see wickedness. Like, we see evil. We see it in our own hearts, but we see it of God. You see Solomon's point here. There's corruption. It's not just corruption out there. There's corruption in the places you would not expect corruption. Now, that takes us to the question that I really want us to wrestle with tonight: How do we respond to that? There is corruption. There is wickedness in the places that, that, that there should not be. But we are Christians. So, how do we respond to that sort of injustice in the world? Let me give you a couple of suggestions. number one, ask Christians, we should intervene. you see what i'm I 'm getting at don't you What do we learn in Isaiah chapter one? Uh, God speaks to his people. He doesn 't just see, seek justice. listen to what God says. He also tells his people to be to be correcting oppression or what about our Lord in, in Luke 11, he rebukes the Pharisees. Why does he rebuke them? He rebukes them from standing back, not doing anything about prevalent corruption, just by standing back. So do you see what God wants from you and I? What does he, want? What does he tell us to do in Scripture? If we see injustice, something we must do is intervene. But there's another side to this, and really this is how Solomon reacts here. How do we respond to wickedness in these places, injustice? Friends, we should trust all of these things over to our sovereign God. Isn't that what Solomon does here in verse 17? Do you see He sees this corruption, he sees this injustice. Where does his heart go? He's troubled by this. What's his next thought? He says, God! I've seen this corruption, but God, but God will bring judgment. Do you, do you see his response corruption? It is to pass all of these things over to a much better, a much fairer, a much greater judge. Now, looking around the congregation, most of you were here last week for our sermon in Ecclesiastes. Do you remember what the, the, do you remember what the theme was last week? Do you? We're thinking about the sovereignty of God. Do you remember this? We're remembering that God is a God who sets every event in your life. He sets all things in their perfect timing. Right? Everything. God sets these things in their perfect time. Isn't that where Solomon is here? Do you, do you see what he does in verse 17? He speaks about, yeah, God sets the time, but what for? God has set a time for judgment. He's saying that God has set an appropriate time. God has set a day for judgment. And, and so let me pass this over to you and ask you this. And I've asked you it before and I will ask you it again. Do you think about that? Do you, does it, do you live in light of that fact that God has promised that he has set a time for justice and judgment? It's not not a popular thing. It's it's not a popular thing to think about even in the life of the church. But do you give it thought? The reality of a judgment and a judgment day. If you do, if you answer that question and say, actually, I do think about judgment day, how how do you think it's going to go? Like we know, uh, don't we as Christians, that there'll be a separation on that day, don't we? You know, the separation of the sheep and the goats. What then? If you're thinking about judgment day, what do you think? Do you think, well, okay, he separated the Christians from the non-Christians. God then sort of ushers the believers into glory. And then he turns around and he acts in judgment over those who are wicked and unbelieving. Is that the way that you think about the day of judgment? That's not what's going to happen. Because look at verse seventeen. Who's going to be judged? God will judge God will bring a judgment doesn't say the wicked. God will bring a judgment both the righteous and the wicked. So do you see what that means? That means that every okay, there's not many in here tonight this evening there's not many of us tonight but you know what it means it means that every single person in here will face at one stage the detailed scrutiny and the detailed judgment of god every single one of us is going to be judged now if we're a christian if you're a christian in there what's that going to look like I mean, are we thinking just now, but I thought it was about Jesus. How come I'm going to face judgment? I think that maybe the best way to think about it is in two stages. First of all, let me assure you of this, your heart will be judged on judgment day. You know, this question, God will look at you and this fundamental question will be asked of you. Have you in this life trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? God will know the answer to that. And if he sees and knows that the answer is yes, what happens then? <laughs> your salvation is absolutely assured, all on the basis of Jesus, all in his work. Your, your eternity is secured. Your heart will be judged, but wait for this. What Paul makes clear, First Corinthians, what we hear throughout the New Testament, what we see right through to Revelation, is that there will be a second element. Listen, your works will also be judged on judgment day. Now, do you think about that? See, the Christian service that we talked about so much this morning, hopefully you remember the morning service. You see, the the Christian service that we talked about, are we thinking it's just an add-on to our lives? Do we think it's not a vital element of of the Christian living? Don't you see, one day God is going to look and assess all of that Christian. He is going to assess and gauge all of the works that we do since the time that we have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's going to do that in order to determine how much heavenly honor we are due. We're going to be judged and our service, our work is going to be judged. Now that's a thought, isn't it? But hopefully you see that that maybe is not Solomon's primary thought. Because at the moment here, Solomon is taking solace in his old age in this fact that the corrupt will also meet with their maker. And isn't that in some ways a wonderful thing that the tyrants of this earth and the the dictators of this earth and the bullies of this earth and the unrepentant and the evil and the wicked that one day what 's going to happen, they will be weighed in balances by a sovereign God, and they' all be brought to account all of the wicked brought to account before god, and so aren 't you with in a way aren 't you with Solomon here because doesn 't that idea fan the flames of your love for God, your sheer admiration for God because what 's true? He's not like the rulers of this age. And a man alive, have we not heard a lot about the rulers of this age in the last few days? And God is not like that. He's not like that. And God is not like the unjust unjust uh, courts of law. He's not like this. That God doesn't turn a blind eye to wickedness. He doesn't accept a, a bribe. He doesn't tolerate any sort of infraction. Any sort of sin. Listen, your God is perfectly and eternally a good, good God. Proverbs says this, it says that, listen up to this verse. A false balance, it is an abomination to God. But a just weight, it is his delight. Aren't you with Solomon? And in the face of this world's injustice, don't you tonight praise God that he's different? Don't you praise the God of heaven above? So we see that earthly injustice, it should, uh, for the Christian, it should evoke greater trust and greater faith in God. There is a second lesson. I say two lessons. This is the second lesson that we'll focus on here. We learn in this portion of Scripture that earthly mortality should evoke greater joy in work. Earthly mortality should evoke greater joy in work. Let's go back to that uh, Saving Private Ryan picture that we had. So we've got Solomon at the end of his life, and he's an elderly man, and he's been contemplating, he's looking back over his life. He's been talking to us, if you like, about the things he's seen. Let's say he just stops for a moment. And he has a little glass of water, a little drink of water, wipes his brow. Then what do we see? We see Solomon again. This sort of reflective look comes back in his face. You can see he's thinking about the past once again. He's contemplating his life. And he begins again to speak to us. What does he say? Well, now Solomon tells us of a second truth that he's seen in his life. But get this, it's actually the next thing is connected to the first. Because here's the question. If God has set a time for judgment, why isn't that time now? Like, there's this injustice and there's this corruption and there's wickedness. Why does God not act immediately to root that out and to judge the perpetrator? Why doesn't he just judge straight away? I hope you know the answer to that. It's because of grace, isn't it? That God delays his justice to give you and I an opportunity to repent. Isn't that what it is? He delays it to give humanity an opportunity for men and women to see their plight. And what is that plight? Well, look at this. Verse 18 makes the plight really clear. Solomon says that all men everywhere, all humanity are like what? The animals. Or, if you've got the ESV, we are like the beasts. And I was reading it to start with. I was reading that verse in the ESV. And I was finding myself a little bit put out by this uh, this thought here. And I was thinking, you know, I'm not like, this is a rhetorical question. I am, am I like a beast? I'm not like a beast. I'm not like the animals. I mean, I'm made in the image of God. You know, and I, I can read. And uh, I can think beyond the, the sort of immediate and the here and now and what I'm going to have for my next meal. I'm not like the the beasts, am I? And Solomon you are. In one crucial, inescapable way, you're like the animals. And do you see what it is, verse 19? That we, like they, like the animals, like the beasts, that we will surely die. In Ecclesiastes earlier on, it was like, it was the wise who would die like the foolish. But you see what it is here? It is that all humanity, that we are going to die just like dogs. You know, whether we are a king or a cow, that we can't escape that reality. That, that you and I and all humanity Like the beast We are going to perish And do you see Do you see the language he uses Look at verse 20 Let's See if it rings a bell He says all come from dust And to dust they return Does that ring a bell Do you see what he's doing It's so clever It's so clever Because you can see the op- the, 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 the opposition Or the, the, the problem people might have They'll say well that's not fair like we're better, we're, humanity's better than the animals and we're much more intelligent. It's not fear that we die like the beasts. And what is Solomon doing in the language? Where's the language from? Isn't he pointing you to the fall? Isn't he pointing you to Genesis 3 for you are dust and to dust you shall return? Friends, he's saying we die. Quite simply because we deserve to die. We die because we deserve to die. Or somebody else puts it like this. You and I, we become like the beasts because we desired to become like God. Now, am I uh, making you depressed? Uh, It's your Sunday night and here we are, we're in a portion of Scripture that's dealing with your inevitable, impending death. I I just want to ask the same question that we asked a moment or two ago. How do we respond to this? Like, death is here in the room. Like, your death is confronting you tonight from this portion of Scripture, and it's sitting next to you. How do we respond to that truth that we are going to certainly die? Like, do, we, do we weep tonight at this? And do we mourn at this truth? The answer that Solomon gives is absolutely remarkable. Do you see what it is? It's verse 22. Look at it. In the light of our certain demise, what is our response? The response should be joy. That's what he's saying. The response to the news of our certain demise, there should be rejoicing and rejoicing in the work of our hands, rejoicing in our work and what we do. Now, how do we get there? Uh, Well, think of it like this. My dad, my father in Inverness, for years when he was a bit more sprightly than he is uh, uh, today, he would build up uh, Mini Coopers. I think everybody knows what a Mini Cooper is, the 1960s classic car. So what my dad would do is he would order a shell, so just the shell, and then he would get all these uh, different parts and he'd recondition everything and build these cars up. You know, to they're sort of almost race prepared race spec cars. They were beautiful. I mean, a work of art, these things. Do you know what the best thing about it was? He would give them to me to sell for him. Okay? Which he probably would acknowledge as maybe foolishness on his behalf. But he would give them to me to take down Edinburgh or Glasgow, where I was staying, and I would sell them for him. Now, think about that. Think about what I knew. I knew that I would only have these cars for a couple of weeks. Maybe as much as a month before some punter would come along with the cash. He'd stump up the cash and I would have to hand over the cars, right? And so you can imagine what I was like for those few weeks. I was just, I didn't do anything else. I was supposed to be at university, but of course, I was driving about Glasgow. You know, I spent all of my time in these cars. Maybe if my dad, maybe if he had said to me, here's the car, you can have it for the rest of your life, eh, uh, Maybe I was so obsessed, but because I knew I would only have that for just a short time, I just, I was obsessed with this car. I just spent all my time in the car. Do you see it? That's what we should be like with life. I mean, the very fact that you and I know that it is soon to be taken from us. We as Christians, we should be reveling in the time that we have just now. That our mortality, that it should be a spur to you and I embracing every single moment, every single second of our lives. And I... uh, I want to ask whether that sounds like your approach to life. Like, not this idea, you know, you eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. But the idea that as Christians, with this certainty of what's going to happen to us, but also with the knowledge that we only have a short time here, are we embracing every moment of our lives? Is that our attitude to what God has given us, this precious gift of life? Think about work and your attitude to work. I mean, that's Solomon's example here. How are we approaching work? Are we people who moan all the time about our workplace and are we complaining about these genuine difficulties of work or is our attitude different? And are we looking at our lives and seeing this precious gift that God has given us? And are we trying to even embrace the very difficult areas of our employment? Do you see the point from Solomon here? The very certainty of death for the Christian, it should be a spur and a spur to to live. And then (laughs) I'll end like this. Because I have to address this. What Solomon says about the afterlife in verse 21 is not easy at all. He says the following. He says, who knows if the spirit of man rises upwards and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the, to, into the earth. Now, you see, it's difficult. It's difficult. But you see what he's saying? It is not that Solomon is denying the afterlife. It is about proof. You know, he's saying, who knows for sure when you stand over a grave and you lower the coffin, the casket in there, who knows for 100% sure where that soul is headed. It's, It's about proof, but it's difficult it's enigmatic but hear me on this we we are closing with this when we see what Solomon says there in light of the rest holy scripture what can you and I as Christians be utterly utterly convinced of what do we know we know that we're going to die and we know that we are going to be judged we know this what else do we know we know that for some in death, there will be a new and wonderful home. We know that for those that he has chosen, the father has prepared a mansion and is a mansion with a multitude of beautiful rooms. We know that there is prepared for Us for the people of God, a house that we've never seen before, a house that is made by heavenly hands. And maybe you're not a Christian tonight, and maybe you're new to the church, and maybe you're looking at me and saying, you are so illogical. You've said in the sermon that God is perfectly just. And now you're saying that in his house he is going to accept to himself people who are full and wicked and who lie and steal. Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you think this is just, this is illogical. It doesn't make sense. If you're thinking that, listen to the answer. It is all of it about Jesus. That that happens because the Father sent his Son into the world to do what? To maintain on that cross the Father's perfect, perfect justice. that Because in Christ, what has happened? In Christ, all of the sins of his people, they have already been punished. They have been punished. So tonight, when we consider life after death, we should all be moved by the Holy Spirit. To look and fix our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, do you know, He's made us a promise, and I think maybe some of us need to hear the promise. Because I don't know what it's like for you, but as your pastor, I know that it's a very real thing that we fear death. And we worry about death. And we we think about the fact that it's close and it's real. So maybe you need to hear the promise from Jesus again. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. What's the promise? And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. He who believes in Jesus will live even though he dies. What a promise that is, isn't it? that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to stand by you in your death, in those final moments, that the Lord Jesus Christ is then going to stand by you in the judgment. And then after that, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to stand by you throughout everlasting life. What a God we have. Let's pray.